Hello, and welcome to Everybody's National Parks, an audio travel guide aimed to inspire you and your family to visit America's national parks and help you get the most out of your park experience. This is your host, Danielle. This episode is coming out in spring of 2020 during COVID-19. Please be safe and follow guidelines to stay at home and social distance. If you are going to a national park, check the website for specific closures and guidelines for that park. The content of this interview is to inspire future travel once it is safe to do so. Thank you, and we hope you and your loved ones stay healthy. This is episode 25. I talk with Stephanie Puglisi of the RV Atlas podcast and co-author of See You at the Campground about the benefits of staying in a campground setting rather than a hotel during your national park visit. Stephanie shares how there is a camping situation to fit everyone's needs and comfort. Send us your questions or comments to hello at everybody'snps.com or on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Now let's get to the conversation. Hi, Stephanie. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Danielle. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I am so excited to talk to you about this book that you've written with your husband. I just loved it so much. It's called See You at the Campground. And I I laughed. I envisioned my own family. I got inspired to try and <laughs> broach the subject of my extended family going on a camping trip together because they are not campers. It just gave me so many ideas and inspiration, and I'm just thrilled to be able to talk to you about it. Well, thank you. That was exactly why we wrote the book. We really wanted to inspire people, but also give them really helpful advice for how to make those like dreamy dreams into a reality that's not miserable for everyone, right? <laughs> right, exactly. And I just want to share with people how this book is laid out and some of the reasons I enjoyed it. So just looking at the table of contents, you can just skip ahead to what you think is, you know, most pertinent to you. And so for me, I immediately went to your National Parks chapter. And after I read that, it, every chapter starts off, you swap between you and Jeremy each chapter. And then you have some anecdotes, your own story, and then practical information, and then some really quick tips to summarize. And I just loved that. And I read the National Parks chapter and I enjoyed it. And then I thought, you know what? Let me look at the rest of this. And I read the whole book and everything was so helpful and useful to me. Some things I knew, some things I didn't. I learned so much. When I think about camping, I automatically just think of tent camping. And my family does do that. But we also do cabin camping. But I always think of that as cheating. I didn't think of that as the camping experience. Yeah. I mean, that was a big part of what we wanted to do in this book. I think that um, we kind of thought of ourselves as RV enthusiasts, right? For years and years. Like we thought the reason why we enjoy what we're doing is because we have an RV. You know, for your listeners that don't know, we bought our RV about 10 years ago and we didn't know what we were doing. It wasn't like we were lifetime campers or RVers. And we just loved it so much. So for a while, we were like, oh, my gosh, we just love RVing. And after a few years, we realized it wasn't about the RV. It was about 
the camping, right? It was about the campground experience and whether we were in our RV or whether we were in a tent or a cabin, it was all about the campground. And that's what we fell in love with. So we wanted to kind of flip that script a little bit and not write a book about RVing, but write a book about camping. And to us, that means whatever you're in at the campground, right? Right, exactly. And that was a new way of looking at it for me. So tell me more, like, why do you recommend the camping experience? And if you can describe the different types of camping versus other types of accommodations. For us, sometimes we stay in the park lodge or the park accommodations. Sometimes we camp and you're getting a different experience. Yeah. So I think that the the reason we realized we loved the campground so much is that it really is a different experience with both the outdoor space and the on-site amenities. We stayed at Airbnbs. We stay at, at national park lodges and we actually really enjoy doing that sometimes. We're not, you know, one trick ponies. We don't want to go to everybody and say, look, this is the only way to ever travel with your family and friends. But for us, we realize that there's just something missing every single time we're at one of those other types of accommodations, like a hotel or an Airbnb. And it really is about that outdoor space. Every campground, every cabin at a campground, it basically comes along with a yard (laughs) that you don't really get in any kind of accommodation. And maybe it has to do with the fact that we have three active boys and they have been like, go, go, goers since day one. And having that constant outdoor space whenever we are traveling for them to run around, you know, at a campground, there's almost always this big field. And think about a hotel or even an Airbnb, right? You can get this beautiful big house and it hardly costs any money. Well, how much outdoor space is there always at those places? Well, even if it has a yard, it probably doesn't have a lot of the other things that we love so much about campgrounds, like the playgrounds and all of the activity areas, like where kids are playing gaga ball or kickball or basketball or tennis. I mean, for kids like mine, they will go nonstop from one of those outdoor amenities to the other. And when we don't have that, we really realize it. We're like, wow, we miss. Like last summer, we hiked 12 miles with our kids to a glacier and back. We got back to the campground. Our kids played for hours at the mini golf, bocce ball, and pool that night. And we're like, how do they have any energy left? But they do. And so like the campground is our happy place, I think, because of that combination. <laughs> I love that. The campground is my happy place. <laughs> that is so true. And of course, there's the campfire. <laughs> yeah, that like just brings it every day to a close, right? Like at night, really, when you're at, at a hotel or at an Airbnb, I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, what are we usually doing? We're in the living room watching TV, even when we're traveling. And when you're at a campground, that just is generally not the case. You're outside around the campfire. And there's just something about the campground that draws you continually outside and also into really social situations with your family. And that's something that we all need more and more these days when at home we are increasingly, right, like busy and focused on our screens. Right, exactly. For me, I think I love staying in park accommodations in addition to tent camping. And sometimes weather doesn't always cooperate. But when I'm in a tent, 
I will be very likely to wake up early and watch the sunrise or be out watching the stars before I go inside for the night. And if I'm inside a lodge or some sort of building (laughs) structure, I'm less likely to do that. So that's where I miss the camping aspect when we choose not to do it. Can you describe the different types of camping experiences that you talk about in your book? And you say that there's a camping experience for everyone and every type of budget. Sure. When we first got our RV um, and we were going to some campgrounds of a certain type, my father, who is like an Eagle Scout, right? And like raised us by like throwing canvas and ropes at us and telling us to try to figure out how to set up a tent, you know, when like they would see us, they would say, well, that's not camping. And that, that's this common refrain that you hear, right, from people who have been doing this for generations, like the old school, you know, bootstrap campers. And we are of a completely different mindset. We don't ever tell anyone that that's not camping. You can camp any way you want whose business is of ours, right? So the trick is to just find the style that suits you. So, you know, like we already talked about a little, first of all, there's just lots of different types of accommodations out there. And they're not just limited to private campgrounds, right? Like so many state parks out there right now are really building out their what we call alternate accommodations, like yurts and glamping tents and more like cabins, but a little more lodgy, right? These individual cabin structures that can hold a bigger family. So, you know, these campgrounds out there are really kind of changing, I think, that tone a bit more and providing a lots of different ways for people to camp, not just in RVs or on tent sites. And we love this movement in the industry. We think that it's fabulous. And actually, our next book, which won't come out until next year, but it's already done. And it is really more focused on these kinds of really fun alternate accommodations that are out there that can bring everybody into the camping world. Um, But, you know, more than just what you stay in, there's a really big range of the type of campground and the amenities that you can find. If you're one of those people that wants a truly rustic experience, you can have it. There's state parks out there. There's county parks, national parks that have no water, electricity that might even have barely a bathhouse. They'll just have what are called a pit toilets, which ew for me, but great (laughs) if you're okay with that. Um, And there'll be like complete pitch black at night, right? Without any of the camper lights or anything around. And you can be just off in the middle of nowhere without a cell signal or anything. But on the flip side of that, there's also these days more and more resort campgrounds. So some people are shocked to find out that there's campgrounds that are costing, you know, $100, $125, $150 a night. But these campgrounds have entire water parks on site and they have tiki bars and restaurants and go-karts and laser tag and zip lining and wall climbing and ninja warrior training courses. And you can just go from one activity to another all day. So for us as a family of five, $100 for all of that is a bargain because we don't have to go anywhere and spend any other money. It's right there on the campground for us. So, you know, and then there's everything in between too. There's just some campgrounds that offer the pool and the playground and some other recreational activities. There's ones that are on a river and you can fish right there. So 
you have to kind of figure out what you're looking for out of the campground experience. And then you need to dive into the kind of campgrounds that will suit that best. Right. So for our listeners, a big expense is lodging, especially if people are not willing to tent camp or need some amenities like a bed and a bathroom. (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, keeping the focus on these different types of camping experiences, but with visiting national parks, what are the options and budget? Well, so one of the nice things about the national parks is that they both have campgrounds in them, right? The national park campgrounds, which we can talk about a little bit more. And then most of the time, there's a huge sort of economy of private campgrounds right outside of those national parks. So in the national parks, um, very few of the campgrounds are going to have a lot of amenities. That's sort of like par for the course when you're doing national park campgrounds. You may have some electric hookups in some, but for the most part, they're going to be what's called dry camping, which is just like no hookups, really simple, really rustic camping. The nice part about it, of course, is that you're going to probably have like ranger programs right there in the campground, right? You're going to be like in the middle of some of the most beautiful places in all of North America. But, you know, if that doesn't work for your family, like flying in somewhere and tent camping, right? Or like even driving and tent camping and roughing it and then like waking up and you're like sore and not really up for taking those hikes or anything. If you want a bed, like you said, a bathroom, you can really take a look at some of the private campgrounds that are usually outside of the national parks. So say, for example, we were at... um in Glacier National Park this past summer. And we camped at two private campgrounds on each side. So we camped at on the east side at a private campground outside and on the west side. And what that did for our family is it allowed us to enjoy all of the wonderful beauty of the national park, but still at night return to some amenities that make it work for our family. Like I mentioned before, the pool, things like that. They have like pizza that was delivered right to your room, which is really nice after you spent the whole day hiking and you're tired. So you can look at cabins that are right outside the national park in those private campgrounds, or you can also look at renting an RV, which is becoming more and more popular. Um, In addition to the common rental companies like Cruise America, right, that everybody knows about, these days there's these peer-to-peer rental um, RV companies like Outdoorsy and RV Share And you can find local people who sometimes will just go and deliver the RV right for you at the campground and have it all set up. And you can just stay in the RV at the campground instead of staying in one of the lodges. And and the, the lodges are really lovely in national parks as a family. We've enjoyed them. And but the bottom line is they are pricey. It's not an inexpensive thing to stay for a few nights in a national park lodge. Right. Exactly. And so for your glacier experience, for example, that sounds amazing that you had the best of both worlds. However, Glacier, you're kind of limited on when you can visit. I did listen to your podcast about Glacier, talking about your trip. And Glacier is a very busy park. So how did that affect you staying outside the park and then you know, getting ready each day to do your activities inside the park? Yeah, we stayed at campgrounds that were really close to the entrances. I mean, the the campground that we stayed at on the east side was literally, I think, two miles away 
from the main visitor center on the east side and from St. Mary Campground, the one that's actually in the national park. I mean, we could drive three to five minutes to that campground to see the ranger programs at night. So we definitely do look for proximity. Um, an example of this, I think, is like when we were at the Badlands the year before, there is a really nice private campground outside of the Badlands, the, the KOA, and people love it and they say it's so nice. But in that case, we decided to stay in the park at the National Park Campground that wasn't so nice. We were in a rented RV there. But we did decide to stay in the park because I wanted to be in the Badlands. They have a night sky program there that I was like, look, if we leave at night and we go out to that private campground, we're probably not going to come back for those wonderful night programs that the Badlands is known for. Or I thought also the heat of the day is so extreme there sometimes that, you know, you get out early and then you come back and relax a little in the afternoon and then go out again. So I said, you know, I really want to be in the national park. And I think that that's something that people always will have to weigh when it's, you know, better for them to stay outside and enjoy some more of the amenities or to kind of sacrifice those to be in the park and have that experience. We make both choices. Um, We usually put them all out on the table. This upcoming summer, we're going to be in Utah exploring a lot of the national parks in a rented RV. And most of those stays, a couple are in the national parks, but for the most part, we're outside at resorts because we know it's going to be super hot. We are going to run our kids, you know, ragged. And then at the end of the day, they're going to want to be in a pool and having fun that way. So we're going to make that choice. And also, we also know that the Utah parks have great shuttle service, right? So hopefully we'll be able to get around the parks a little easier on that. So you know, it's never a one size fits all for all the different national parks, too. You have to look at the park, look at the camping options, both in and around, and make a decision based on that. That is so helpful. And wow, gives me a lot of food for thought for our planning for next year. So, in your book, you talk about your trips to South Dakota and to the Pacific Northwest and the very different accommodations you had for both of those trips. Do you mind talking a little bit about each of those trips and what your accommodations look like and how you chose the different options for those two different trips? Sure. So when we went out to the Pacific Northwest, we stayed in cabins or like park models, right? At at all of the different campgrounds, also a glamping tent at one of them. So the inspiration for that trip was we were going out to the Pacific Northwest. We were having, we were definitely going to fly because there's no way I was driving all the way across country with my three kids and a dog and the RV. We wanted to spend more time at the, the you know, Olympic National Park and everything and not so much time getting there. So we definitely knew we were flying. So that took our own RV off the table. And when we're flying, also, I don't want a tent camp because I actually think tent camping to be comfortable, I need a lot of supplies. And I was like, there's no way we're going to, you know, either have to bring them or, or stock up on them. So we knew it was down to either renting an RV or um, staying at the lot at the different accommodations. And when we looked at the campgrounds that we were interested in staying at, we realized that every single one of them had a really unique, amazing accommodation at a campground that we wanted to stay at. So for example, 
there was an RV park right outside of Olympic National Park that had a house for rent. Super affordable. It was ridiculous. I mean, it's been a while, so I forget the exact amount that we spent on the house, but I'm talking like one thirty a night or something for this big house with a laundry room in it, you know, even. And then they also had these glamping tents on the Oregon shore, you know, that like were on the beach. And I was just like the, every step of the way there was an accommodation that felt unique and exciting at a campground that we really wanted to stay at. So, the, you know, so the decision came together like that. Now, fast forward a, a couple of years later, when we were going out to Mount Rushmore and we were looking at all the places that we wanted to stay, and that wasn't the case. So we really wanted to stay at like Bluebell Campground in um, Custer State Park. And they had rustic cabins. Now, I don't stay in rustic cabins anymore because I've done that. And I've realized that to bring like comfortable blankets and pillows and towels and all of that when you're like, you know, out of duffel bags and flying or whatever, that's a nightmare. I did it. I learned my lesson. So I won't ever do that again. So the cabin options at the campgrounds we wanted to stay at just weren't what we wanted. So we decided to instead rent an RV for that trip so that we could stay at the exact campgrounds that we wanted to stay at in the comfort of an RV. So that decision came together, you know, fairly easily. And I think the same is true of Utah. You know, when we looked at all the places we want to stay out there, I want to stay in an RV. And I want to be able to drive in the RV from place to place and be able to stop kind of more quickly and move along. So it it feels like the decision makes itself when we know what we're looking for and we check out the campgrounds that we're looking to stay at. Okay. That's, that's really helpful. And that makes a lot of sense. That Pacific Northwest trip sounds amazing. (laughs) And all the different places that you stayed just look really cool. So it was dreamy for sure. I mean, my kids, that was, it's hard to believe that was so many years ago now. I'm trying to think maybe four summers ago. And it's almost hard to believe that because my kids still talk about it regularly. It's still such an amazing memory for our family. We had so many a phenomenal experience is there. And did you hit other national parks or just Olympic? So we went to um, Mount St. Helens, which was way more amazing than we ever thought it would be. And then we also went to the Redwoods. So, and we went to, so actually the dunes is a national seashore, I think too. So we were in the dunes in Oregon and I think they're the national dunes or something like that. (laughs) It's an MPS site. I'm not sure exactly the designation. And then we went down to the um, Redwoods National Forest also in Northern California. So we definitely um, made a big loop and spent a lot of time in, in national and state parks while we were out there. And how long was that trip? <laughs> I think that was 28 days. Wow. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And that's one of our longer trips. And it's funny because And we always try to stay really real with all of our content. And we'll say this on our podcast all the time too. Like as much as that was one of the most phenomenal trips we've ever taken as a family, it was too long for me. Like, and I think for the kids too, by the time we got to the end of the trip, it wasn't that we weren't enjoying ourselves because the last campground we stayed at, oh, we went to Crater National Park too. That was the last campground that we stayed at at Crater National Park. And they loved it and they still talk about it all the time, but we were all homesick by that point. And I think 
ready just to be home with our dog who, you know, we can bring when we do our own RV and sometimes, oh, when we rent too, she, uh, Maggie was allowed to come along with the rental RV into the Dakotas and the boys start to miss her when we do fly somewhere. So, you know, it's good to find your sweet spot as a family for us. I like a little over two weeks and then that's it for now. So right now I don't really plan a lot of trips that are more than 16 days. Even that is a helpful tip to hear because sometimes I feel like, oh, I'm going all the way over there. Let's try to cover everything and we're paying for the plane ticket. So let's just make the most out of it. But right, like you said, it just gets to be too long. And it yeah, my it, husband's that way. He's always like, but let's tack on this and this and this, right? And in logically, it makes sense. You are going all that way. And if you have any flexibility, it can be hard to pull the plug, right? And say like, enough is enough. I think it's really important if you want to travel as a family and with your kids to figure out what works. It doesn't matter. Don't judge yourself for it. Don't listen to what works for anybody else. Like my 16 days might be your eight days. Like just figure out when when everybody's happy and, and go by that. Don't worry about anybody else. Right. And my last question for Pacific Northwest is, so in terms of your planning stage, did you look for the campgrounds that um, you looked at the campgrounds first in the park? You see, if you see that you don't like what you see, then you look for the closest campgrounds that are near the places you want to visit. And then you went from there and saw that they had these cool places to stay. And that was how you made your decision. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we definitely pick our destinations first. I mean, there's some people that are like camping first people, right? Like they're just choosing where they want to stay at a campground and they're hanging out at a campground. We are definitely destination travelers. So we pick the place we want to go and then we figure out what the best camping options are around there. So that's kind of our our natural progression. Okay. Well, that's helpful. And then moving on. So South Dakota, you thought, okay, the best option for your family will be RV rental. That would be new territory for us. <laughs> and so can you, but we've, we've thought about it, but haven't gotten there yet. So for someone like us, and we definitely want to hit South Dakota, we definitely want to get to Utah. What do we need to keep in mind? How does one go about that for the first time? Yeah, I think that, um, first of all, it's important to think motorized and to think on the smaller side, right? So not too small because nobody will be comfortable. So there's two kinds of RVs that you're going to see when you're looking for rentals. You're going to see motorized, which are the ones you drive, and you're going to see towables, which, you know, hook onto a truck. Now, we have an F-250, so for us, we can rent a towable. And if we want to, and we're fine, we're so used to that experience. But actually, if you don't have RV experience, it's going to be much easier for you to adapt to two types, a class C or a class B. So a class C is going to look like that type of like U-Haul truck, right? <laughs> like with the cab over the top. And honestly, they really are easy to drive. It feels like you're driving a, a, a truck, right? It, it, the, I always remember the first time I've gotten into any kind of RV to drive it and the nervousness that you feel. And then a class C, it's just fine. You get driving and you're like, this isn't that big of a deal at all. And a class B are those smaller ones, right? That are like um, camper vans or vans. And those are super easy to drive, really easy to get around in. Um, however, the storage space in those is really lacking. 
So if you're the kind of family that's used to everybody bringing a suitcase and like having the suitcase there, it's going to be tricky for everybody to fit in. Whereas a class C, our family of five can comfortably be in a class C for two weeks with all of our stuff and, you know, have room to spare. And usually we rent at about 30 feet, I would say 30, 32 feet, because those are the bunkhouse ones. Uh, But you can always stay smaller. We just are used to driving something a little bigger. So it's not as uncomfortable for us to do that. Um, So I would look for people that have really great reviews if you're doing the um, peer-to-peer rentals. Like I said, we've used both RV Share and Outdoorsy. Um, We look for people that are really supportive and easy to work with. So you might want to message them in advance and see what kind of response you get, right? Like we emailed with the woman that we rented for the Dakotas you know, we were like, oh, we have a dog. And she was like, oh my gosh, your dog is fine. You know, she's used to RVing, I'm sure. Like, cause we were like, she's really good. She was so thrilled that we were going to be able to bring our dog along. And she wanted to know what she could provide for us so that we didn't have to pack it. She was like, well, how many chairs do you need? And so, you know, that really gave us the knowledge that we were working with someone who knew how to make our camping experience the best it could be in a rental. Um, I highly recommend not renting from dealers. I think that most of the time dealers are not very good at the customer service and hospitality business. So a lot of them will just say like, oh, we've got a couple of extra RVs on our lot. Like, let's rent them out. Like, it's going to be free money. And they don't really have like the stocking um, background and like the support staff to make sure that you have a good experience. So I would um, avoid that. But if you want a whole heck of a lot of support from, you know, soup to nuts, then the company like Cruise America is going to be great. You know, they're going to you're going to be driving around in a big bulky thing that um, advertises their company, right, which a lot of people don't like because <laughs> it doesn't look as nice, right, as some of the other RV options. But you're going to get all of their support. And those RVs are actually made for like dummies. Like they um, run the cruise RV, the units are actually run down a different manufacturer line. So they're made specifically for renters and they have very few things that you can break, right? Because they're made for people that don't really know what they're doing. So that's a benefit of renting from them as well. That sounds like a good option for first timers who might be a little nervous about it. (laughs) Oh, for sure. Because they're so used to doing it, right? They're going to walk you through the entire process. So it's a very good place to start. It's going to be a little more pricey than your options on RV share and outdoorsy. Like the ones, the one that we're renting for this summer, um, you know, maybe I, I don't remember the exact number, but I think we're renting a classy bunkhouse brand new for about $199, you know, a night. And that includes all of our driving. So you think you don't have to rent a car. Right. It's all in generator use and everything. So oh. it's a good price. So that's an interesting question, actually, because you do talk about how if you're not doing the tent camping and you're doing one of these other options, it's not going to be cheaper than an Airbnb or a hotel, but you're getting the camping experience. But from what you just said, you don't also need the car rental. How does that break down? Well, you know, we say that because I think some people automatically think that's cheaper. Like, and so we just like to adjust that expectation. But the thing with RVing and camping is you have control over so many costs that it can be cheaper. It doesn't have to be, but it can be. So for example, if you're going to rent an RV, right, and and you're flying somewhere and you're going to rent an RV and not rent a car, 
And you're going to stay at the National Park campgrounds for, say, $23 a night. Like, you are going to save money, right? Like, especially if you're cooking your own food, because a lot of people don't realize, like, you can go grocery shopping. Like, when we got to Glacier, our first stop was the grocery store. So we got to, you know, stock up on all of our groceries and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for lunch and stuff like that. And if you're staying at a, a hotel a lot of the time or a, a national park lodge, you're going to have to pay for meals. And that adds up really fast. You know, there's so many different costs that factor into a vacation that we like to emphasize, like you're in control of your costs at all of the, those different points. So don't like think that you can't directly line up your RV cost with your hotel cost and make a, you know, price line comparison that way. You kind of have to look at it a little more holistically. That makes complete sense. So what is your campground wish list when you're looking for uh, and choosing your campground, no matter if you're doing the tent, the RV, RV rental, or the glamping situation? Yeah, it changes. I mean, all the time based on the ages of our kids and where they're at in life. I think that if just Jeremy and I were traveling, you know, by ourselves, it would be like location and beauty all the way. So we would easily stay in national park campgrounds and spend the evenings after long hikes, like just kick back in our camp chairs, staring up at the sky. But with our kids, Really, at this point, like we don't care about playgrounds anymore, but playgrounds used to be really important. Like a playground, a good playground for like four and five and six year olds is like the difference between pulling your hair out and like getting to relax a little, right? Because you could sit and read a book while they play on the playground. But now our kids are in that area where the pool is really important and additional recreation opportunities. So our boys in particular love a pool, they love a basketball court. And maybe like a mini golf or, you know, some other or a gaga ball pit. And oh, and bike riding, right? If there's like paved roads for bike riding, like we can have all, such a relaxing time because our boys will like ride their bikes, but shoot hoops at the basketball court, go to the pool. Like they will just run between all of those activities and it just makes the whole family a little happier. Um, so national parks and state parks with no amenities can be a little tricky for us as a family, just because our boys, like they have no problem figuring out what to do with themselves. If there's like recreational opportunities, but they're not look, my husband and I are teachers. I would love not to say this, but like my kids are not like sit and read a book kids. They're not like play with Legos kids. They're just not. And so like even when we were at Bluebell Campground in Custer State Park, it was an amazing campground that was so beautiful. But they even had a hard time finding a place to like throw a ball, have a game of catch. Right. There wasn't a lot of like open space. So it was kind of hard for them to like keep themselves busy while we were relaxing at the campground. That's that's super helpful. That's just it's completely subjective and depends on what's important to your family. But it's helpful to hear what, you know, what works for your family and what people should consider. Um, so do you have some favorite national park campgrounds that you can share? Oh, goodness. OK, so sure. I mean, it's like where to start. So definitely Acadia National Park has 
a phenomenal amount of campground options, um, both in and outside of the park. So, um, you, so you'll, it'll depend on whether you're tent camping or whether you're RV camping, which campgrounds in the park you can stay at, but the ones in Acadia are super rustic. So like at one of them, you will have to go to the little, um, concessionaire up the road to like pay for a shower if you want to take a shower and you know people love it it's gorgeous anyway you know but then you can stay right outside of the park at like the KOA that we absolutely love and it's the Oceanside KOA and you get all of the amazing views that you would get inside the park but right there on the water outside so for Shenandoah, we love Big Meadows Campground. That whole area is really perfect, especially if you have young kids. Lots of good family-friendly hikes around there. In the Great Smokies, there are dozens of amazing campgrounds. We actually did a roundup of, I think, like 10 because nobody can ever decide where to camp in the Smokies, right? Because there's so many different options. But again, you can camp in the park or out of the park, just depending on what kind of amenities you want. I'll say I'm really looking forward to camping in Grand Canyon, right? At the, um, I think it's called the Grand Canyon Trailer Park. And that is inside the National Park. And that was one of those decisions that we made for ease of access, right? So if you stay outside of the Grand Canyon, it can be pretty tricky to get in. Long lines, it takes a while to drive in. And we said, hey, we want to be in the park at Grand Canyon. I don't want to be fighting crowds to get into the park through the gate in the morning. So that was one of the driving factors for us staying in the park there. Yeah, we stayed inside the park at Grand Canyon, but chose to stay in the lodges there. And so we were right next to the canyon and I was easily able to wake up before sunrise, be there at the side of the canyon and watch the sunrise with no problem. Yeah, that's definitely what I want to do. And I love that it's Cedar Pass, like Cedar Pass Campground was in the Badlands. And that was just one of those amazing life experiences was watching the sunrise over the Badlands is something everybody should see for sure. Yeah, exactly. So if we can just take a couple of minutes to go through some top tips so much was helpful to me in your book. And these are things I struggle with. So if you have some tips to share, we can start with your top packing and unpacking tips. Okay. Two things here. Keep it simple. Okay. You know, most places you travel, if you need something in a pinch, you'll be able to get it. This is America, right? Like, so don't pack for every contingency. All right. Pack for layers and pack for weather. So those things, yes, you always bring a raincoat. You always bring those extra sweatshirts. But don't feel like you got to bring your whole house with you when you go. It just takes more time and more stuff is more energy while you're traveling, right? So keep it as light as you can while still being comfortable would be my tip. And, and, and figure out what that is by trial and error for yourself. And then also make your kids uh, get involved, right? Do not spend your kids' whole childhood packing and unpacking for them. Teach them how to do it. Um, it's not that hard. So my kids, by the time I feel like they were six or so, get basically checklists. Um, and I train them through it. And they know exactly how to pack for a long weekend or for a week trip. They're incredibly involved in the packing process. Um, and sometimes that leads to some forgetful moments. <laughs> but you know what? Like 
how do they learn? You know, that's on them. And I do try to be careful, like, and, and double check still when they're little. But yeah, make your kids make your kids do some of the heavy lifting involved in family travel for sure. Right. And the other lesson I've learned is the things that you forget, you can often do without. So yeah. <laughs> our, not that big of a deal in the end, right? Our lesson was uh, we just recently went to Big Bend and there's the hot springs there. So we needed bathing suits. Well, out of our entire family, only one of us remembered a bathing suit. <laughs> but we made do. We had shorts and t-shirts and we still enjoyed it and just had to leave them out to dry for a while. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and you know what? They'll remember that too. <laughs> <laughs> and this was everyone packing for themselves and nobody doing any checks. So including myself, I forgot my own bathing suit. So <laughs> only one child remembered their bathing suit. No judgment here. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. Oh, another thing that I often struggle with also is camp food. And so especially, you know, it's different. I know your family likes to just, you know, go somewhere nearby for a weekend or a long weekend. And that's much different than, say, flying and then being in the Pacific Northwest or the Grand Canyon or Utah or or you know, any of these other places we've talked about, South Dakota. So how do you manage that um, feeding yourselves when you have to travel a great distance, whether it's by car or flying, and then you're there for a while? Yeah, we definitely make a stop at a food store almost immediately after landing in any place because it's one of the easiest ways to just save money as a family, um, especially now that our kids are older Feeding a family of five at a restaurant is no small feat. Like, it's expensive. I think that that cost actually adds up more than people realize when they're traveling, that food cost of eating out, especially if you're doing it on a regular basis. So um, a grocery store stop will save us so much money. If we go in, we get bottles of water. We get all of the basics for really simple lunches. So like I said before, peanut butter and jelly, maybe we'll get some, you know, deli meat, um, just really simple lunches, breakfast. Again, we're not trying to impress anybody when we're doing that type of a trip with like an amazing campground breakfast spread. You know, yeah, when we go away for the weekend with friends, sure, we're making pancakes and eggs and bacon outside in the morning. But when we're flying across country and landing, we're not looking to have splendid breakfast, so much as amazing experiences in the national parks. So we really will have cereal, bagels and cream cheese and cliff bars and stuff like that, that we stock up on at the grocery store. And then oftentimes we will plan a few dinners like burgers, hot dogs, really simple stuff. I mean, I don't want to sound like boring, but you know, we'll have a few eating out experiences, but I'm certainly not aiming to cook anything gourmet when I'm traveling far from home. Definitely not. No. And when you're doing that, when you're doing your shopping, are you also getting a cooler at the store or are you bringing one with you? Yes. If you have an RV, if you rented an RV, you don't have to, right? Because you'll have a refrigerator. So that's great. Or if you're renting a cabin, you're also going to have that refrigerator. So what I've done, um, like in the Pacific Northwest, what I did is get one of those, you know, those like styrofoam coolers. Right. Just to transfer between cabins, right? Because I knew we would be going from one to the other and I would want to keep our leftover food. Like you don't want to buy ketchup, you know, <laughs> like every time. 
So I got one of those styrofoam coolers just at the grocery store and to have for that entire 20 something day trip. Um, now for other trips, we haven't had to do that. Like when we rented in the Dakotas, you rent the RV, we would pull into, you know, a, a grocery store usually has a lot of parking on the outside or of course a Walmart, right? Because there's plenty of parking. You go in, you grocery shop, you bring it right out and you load it all up into your RV refrigerator. So this summer we'll be actually staying at a campground in Las Vegas to start the trip. And we'll have the the RV actually dropped off at the campground. So when we fly in, we'll just Uber to the campground. And at that point, I'll find a local grocery store to basically stock us up for the entire trip. So that's the plan. Or, of course, we might talk to the campground owner and say, hey, is there a good you know, grocery store on the way out of town towards the Hoover Dam that we should stop at. And if they have a good idea, then we'll just say, oh, we'll just wait till tomorrow and stop on our way and stock up. So, you know, they, we, we kind of like know how to, how to meander our way around a new destination that way. Right. That's great. But once you get to the park, so Big Bend, the first grocery store we saw, we just stopped there and got everything we thought we needed. And then we had to fill in some gaps or ran out of stuff. And thankfully, there was the camp store right there in Big Bend. And it had anything we needed that we ran out of. Oh, yeah. Bread, milk, a lot of that stuff you'll have at a camp store. So that's nice. And it's really in the middle of nowhere. So there (laughs) you have to really travel for a store. So that was good. Have you ever had an experience where there is nothing? You've done your shopping and then you're at the, the park, but then you can't find what you need? I think that it's never been we couldn't find anything because I think most of the places are built for tourists. Do you know what I mean? So we've definitely spent more money than we wanted to maybe on dinner because we didn't have any groceries for dinner. Like we had gone through our supplies and we were leaving. Then, you know, we didn't want to like stock up again. And we end up spending way too much at one of those little tourist traps right outside of a national park. And then like, I remember in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, like I really learned that the White Mountains are way more like dispersed than I had initially thought. And we had a more difficult time stocking up on groceries there and like replenishing groceries. Like that was a real surprise to me. So I think I do a little more advanced intel, you know, after that, the White Mountains were a long time ago. And I think I learned from that experience. Like I pretty much don't get myself into that. And I don't mind overstocking on food a little bit. I do try to overstock on things that are a little more, um, you know, shelf stable. So like cliff bars and stuff that, you know, like, okay, you, you're running low, but you can throw everybody a cliff bar for breakfast in the morning that you're flying out and nobody will be too grumpy about it. <laughs> so I've got little tricks up my sleeve that way. But I honestly do feel that in this day and age, like no matter where you are, you're not really that far away. I mean, we've had to drive, you know, say in the Badlands, you have to drive yet a half hour, but Have I ever had to drive more than a half hour, 40 minutes? Probably not. That's good. So selfishly, I have one more question regarding tips. Your top tips for camping with family and friends who are not campers. So me personally, I would love to do some sort of maybe long weekend getaway with my family. I would love to do something at a national park with them. But, you know, there's the cost issue and the travel issue and there's 
lots of members in the family, so it gets costly. And they're not going to tent camp. They are definitely of the type that need to have a bed and have a bathroom. Do you have any tips on how to convince a family to, you know, try this endeavor together? Yeah, I would start out by not making everybody rough it too much, right? So there's a lot of places these days that have really nice cabins set up. Some state parks actually have those cabins that are like larger for bigger groups of people, like say they sleep 16 people or whatever, and they're basically like a mini lodge in and of themselves. Or you go to a more a private campground that has deluxe cabins, right? Which I think a deluxe cabin is one of the best ways to introduce anyone to campground life because they have kitchens, they have comfortable beds with linens, right? My pet peeve in life is like bringing sheets and blankets and pillows to make up a bed when I get to a cabin. Like that is not my idea of a good time when I'm traveling, making beds. So, you know, when you give people that experience and you're like, oh my gosh, let's go to this campground that has deluxe cabins and really nice outdoor space and maybe amenities that everybody can enjoy together, like a really nice pool and maybe a barbecue area and everybody can just enjoy spending time together. I think people get hooked because like, I mean, that's why us and our friends have so much fun getting together at the campground. I mean, we have local friends. We see each other more camping than we do during our day-to-day lives because it's just so much fun to chill out with a drink at the campground around the fire with your friends. And it's very hard to find that, you know, in the other areas of our life. So I think that, you know, coaxing them with comfortable accommodations would be key. That I'm really excited to start <laughs> luring my family into this <laughs> and seeing if I'll have to report back to you and see if I'm successful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make them rough it. <laughs> and I really, I never even considered it until reading your book. We're always struggling to find something we can all do together for a few days where everyone will be happy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that everybody wants to picture themselves like really off the grid, enjoying nature. And when there's a lot of people, it helps to have some of the amenities for sure. Absolutely. So Stephanie, I've so enjoyed this conversation and it's been so inspiring. My last question that we ask all our guests is, can you share a favorite family adventure, a family national park experience where the combination of national park and camping, a moment and experience that has been transcendent for you, for your family, where you say, wow, this we're so lucky to be able to do this and we're going to keep on doing this. Yeah. I mean, it really, I think that every summer we top out what we did the next summer, you know, as our kids get older and we push them a little bit. So I think you know, every year I have a memory from the the summer before that felt that way. And this summer it was most definite um, hiking to Grinnell Glacier at Glacier National Park. It was a 12 mile hike and we had to do a lot of like research and preparation in advance to be able to do that with three kids. Um, the boys, my two older were 10 at the time and my little guy was six. And it was not a flat hike. I mean, you are really climbing a lot of elevation. You're climbing along, you know, cliffs under some waterfalls um, in bear country. So you have your like bear spray and your bear bells. And, you know, with the older two, we trained them since they were so little, you know, and they're 10 and they're so athletic. And it was just like, I really wasn't worried about them. I knew that it would be a strain. 
But I also knew that I was kind of dragging a six-year-old, like a little far beyond the boundaries of what a typical six-year-old like can accomplish. Like I knew that I needed to do this. I wanted to see that glacier before they're gone. And it was just a really important experience for me to have. And I had faith in him, but watching them do that hike and afterwards, I I just had a feeling like I, you know, it's rare to have as a parent, I guess, like you just have those moments where you're just like, wow, you just blew me away. Like you did this. I can't believe you did this. I would never have done this at your age, you know? And they were so proud of themselves. And we had this experience that I know that 30 years from now, 40 years from now, like we will all remember that day so crystal clear, you know? So like so many days of your life just fade away. And that day I know is going to stay with us for a long time. That's awesome. I wonder if we can manage that. We are actually going to Glacier this summer. So, um, wow. It's I, a pretty amazing experience. <laughs> I, I really never considered it a 12-mile hike for my family, but um, maybe we'll have to start training. <laughs> we, yeah, you got to do it. And, and like you said, topping off, because last year we went to Yosemite, and that was their first big, very strenuous hike, was hiking up to Nevada Falls and Vernal Falls. And so in total, I think it was about seven miles but strenuous, you know, steep and everything. And I was so proud of them. And nobody, there was a little bit of whining at the end, but they did it and they did a great job. I I wonder if we could jump from seven to 12. (laughs) No, I mean, I think that adults feel whiny when we're doing stuff that's hard, right? So like, it's okay if your kids get a little like, you know, feed them some Skittles and (laughs) march on. Don't be a purist, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, thank you so much for your time. I so enjoyed it. And, um, you know, check out this book. We'll have links in the show notes. And where can they find you at your podcast and your book? Yeah, sure. So we are the RV Atlas podcast. Um, See You at the Campground is basically everywhere where you like to buy books, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, all those places. And then our website is thervatlas.com. And you can kind of find us on all of the social media platforms there. And we also have a private Facebook group that some people, if you're looking for more advice on camping, um, it's a super friendly group. We keep it that way. We bounce anybody that's cranky. We call it the no cranks allowed group. So that's the RV Atlas Facebook group. If you want sort of some more guidance and experience on camping at national parks around the country. And now is that Facebook group particularly focused on RV camping or not necessarily? Most people in there would either be RV owners or they're people that are interested, right? So we do actually have quite a lot of people in the group. There's about 8,000 people in the group. So there's uh, quite a few of them don't own RVs, but they're probably interested in it, right? Or, But it's um, great because a lot of people do different types of travel and they ask questions like, oh, we won't have RV on this trip, but where should we go or what should we do? So it's a friendly travel and crew. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie. And once again, I am speaking with Stephanie Puglisi author of See You at the Campground and co-host of the RV Atlas podcast. Thanks, Danielle. I appreciate you having me. Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. You may find links to resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes on our website, everybodysnationalparks.com. Send us your stories, tips, or comments to hello at 
everybody'snps.com. You can write us a message or even record a short voice memo on your phone and then attach it to the email. You may be featured on an upcoming episode. Again, the email is hello at everybody'snps.com. Subscribe for free to Everybody's National Parks on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, become a patron. Just click on support our show on our homepage, everybody'snationalparks.com. We also appreciate if you write a review, give us a five-star rating, and tell your friends. This helps more people find us. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We love to hear from you from the parks you are visiting, so please tag us at hashtag everybody's national parks. Most of all, enjoy exploring the national parks with your family. Bye for now.